Welcome to the concluding episode of the Black Dahlia and the Blue Dahlia podcast. I'm your host, Scott Tracy. Elizabeth Short's cause of death is hemorrhage and shock, concussion of the brain, and lacerations of the face. Hemorrhage and shock is commonly seen in victims suffering from multiple battlefield wounds, as well as severe traffic accidents. The concussive blows to the head and the facial cuts by design are delivered to the face of the tortured victim. The killer watches with pleasure as the last glimmer of life expires. Hemorrhage and shock begins when the victim experiences a 20% blood loss and death is irreversible at 25%. Exsanguination is the cause of death at 50%. Draining a body of blood is a post-mortem event. What was the blood loss at the end of life for Elizabeth Short? 50%? 25%? It's not possible to answer given that her body was drained of blood. The coroner lists two causes of death for a reason, and given that the killer would desire to extend the victim's slow death in order to experience as much pleasure as possible out of the victim's pain, I propose that the killer intended for Elizabeth Short to die of exsanguination. Time for a quiz. Can you name a victim of exsanguination? I found only two instances in modern crime history. First, the Atlas Vampire Killer of Sweden murdered 32-year-old prostitute Lily Lindstrom in her bed in Stockholm on May 4, 1932. The Atlas Vampire was never caught. Second, Iana Kassian was killed by her husband, Blake Libel, at their home in West Hollywood in June of 2016. Iana was scalped and hung upside down over the bathtub. Blake Libel had done substantial research on serial killers and had published a graphic comic novella called Syndrome. On page two of his graphic comic, Two exsanguination victims are hung upside down over a drain and they watch each other die. Jane Doe number one was severed at the waist. What can be learned when we compare this to other crimes? Is bisection common? No. Elizabeth Short is the only victim ever bisected in California. When Winnie Ruth Judd murdered her victims in Phoenix and her trunks were found to be leaking blood at Union Station, the severed body of Sammy Samuelson made front-page headlines in the Los Angeles newspapers, and that might have inspired the Black Dahlia venture to cut Elizabeth Short in half, as it appears headlines were a goal. Winnie Ruth Judd's crime plays a role in how the LAPD viewed the Black Dahlia case early in the investigation, given their memory that a woman, and only a woman, had ever committed such a shocking crime. The Velvet Tigress chose to cut the body to fit into her luggage. Why was Elizabeth Short severed? There's no need, there's no benefit to bisection. Another quiz. Since 1949, how many American murder victims have been bisected? 
Well, I'll give you a hint. You can count the number of victims on one hand. The answer is four. Karina Holmler, Delia Mendez, Kayla Williams, and Quinn Wilson were bisected. None of these four examples of mutilation bears any similarity to the modus operandi of the Black Dahlia Avenger. Studying these murders reveals a theme that killers made efforts to hide the crime. All of the victims were moved from the crime scene. None were cut with a scalpel. Power tools were used. In June of 1996, Karina Holmler, the 20-year-old Swedish au pair, disappeared from the alley outside a Boston nightclub, the Zanzibar, where she had last been seen dancing in the street at 3 a.m. 32 hours later, a homeless person finds the upper half of her body in a dumpster near Fenway Park. Her lower half is never recovered and her killer never found. In May of 1999, 34-year-old Delia Mendez, a streetwalker, her body was found in a dumpster behind a pet supermarket in Hollywood, Florida. Her car is nearby. She was commonly seen in this part of town. Her killers never found. In May of 2012, 20-year-old Kayla Williams was found by hikers, her lower half stuffed into an orange plaid sleeping bag. The rest of her body is covered by leaves and debris. Reported missing on April 2nd, her body was found six weeks later. Her killer never brought to justice. In March 2015, 33-year-old Quinn Wilson was robbed and beaten to death by Daniel Landsberger over crack and cash in Lisbon, Ohio. After a three-way drug party in Landsberger's trailer, the men fight. Wilson is stabbed, then beaten in the head until his skull cracks. His body cut in half with a power tool on Landsberger's mattress. Landsberger confesses to a neighbor the police discover the remains of a mattress and box springs still smoldering in a fire pit in the yard near the trailer. The murders of the three women remain unsolved because the bodies and crime scene are hidden, not because the victim was severed. None of these killers thought it necessary to drain blood from the victim. Whoever killed Karina or Kayla or Dealey didn't worry about blood in their car. None of these murderers resemble the Black Dahlia Avenger who maximizes time with the body after death. The Avenger presents Elizabeth Short's mutilations so the public would see his work. The pre- and post-mortem sculpting, the slicing of the mouth, the slashing of the breast, the cross-hatching on the genitalia, and the scooping of the tattoo from the thigh. The Black Dahlia Avenger is a killer who imagined and planned a crime that had never happened before. Avoiding the attention of the police was not his primary concern. This killer prioritized making a splash in the headlines over his need to escape detection. This killer let Richardson of The Examiner hear his voice on the telephone. This killer mailed Beth's belongings to the police and left fingerprints on the envelope. This killer dropped off a purse and shoes on top of a cafe's trash bin and he might have been seen.
This ego-driven crime sequence confounded the LAPD who expected the criminal to avoid capture. Instead, this killer who has hunted his victim reverses the playing field and now embraces the role of prey. The killer's choice to engage in a cat-and-mouse game with the police has much in common with the risks taken by Jack the Ripper and the Zodiac. The wisest choice for any murderer who wants to escape detection and arrest would be a successful disappearance of the body, as is seen in the case of Gene Spangler and in the case of Mimi Boomhauer. Without a body, the investigation is looking for a missing person, not a murderer. In contrast, Elizabeth Short is one of the least missing corpses in history. In this case, the word missing applies to Beth's final week. There's a low ceiling as to what can be learned by studying this elusive victim. Indeed, none of what can be learned or assumed can have any value if her killer was a stranger. I believe the intersection of the killer and the victim is a random act, and as previous observations show, there's no crimes that match up identically with the torture murder of Elizabeth Short. Understanding this articulate killer requires comparing other crime scenes, other victims, other killers, I have one more comparison to offer. A frightening series of multiple headless torsos were found in California rivers in 1948. The torso of an unidentified woman is seen floating in the American River north of Sacramento in June. Six months later, another headless torso was found in the Sacramento River south of the city. This time, neighbors saw a man burn a mattress outdoors and a suspect, 48-year-old Victorano Corrales, admitted to the police in December that he killed Maria Pulado as well as his previous female companion, Alberta Gomez, in June. Corrales told the Sacramento police where to look for Maria's head and legs. Police recover the head and one leg and in the process discover another headless body floating in the river. This time, it's that of a man believed to be in his 40s, wearing long underwear and blue socks, his legs tied with a sash cord. The male victim had been in the water two weeks. Police stated fingerprints were not expected to reveal his identity. Victorano Corrales understood that water, soil, and time will do significant damage to human remains and hinder identification. There's a case I want to contrast with that. It happened in Los Angeles in 1929, and the L.A. Times headline read, Headless, armless, legless torso of a woman found in the swollen Los Angeles River. The detached head is found weeks later. Dental work allows the identification of the body of 40-year-old divorcee Laura Sutton murdered for financial gain by a former suitor, 58-year-old Frank Westlake, who used his scalpel to dismember Sutton. The doctor had the skill to bisect his victim, but no reason to think of bisecting 
Mrs. Sutton, because there was no benefit. A clean bisection done by a person of experience is a signature act that elevates a skilled killer like the Black Dahlia Avenger from a messy killer like Victor Corrales. The scalpel bisection is an action that announces, I am not like the others, I am special. There is one other killer in American crime history who bisected and drained his victim's blood. This killer claimed to local police that he moved to California. The mad butcher of Kingsbury Run dismembered 12 known victims between September of 1935 and January of 1938. The mad butcher is best categorized as a missionary serial killer who would justify murder as being necessary to rid the world of undesirables. A missionary killer will not confess or show remorse as he believes he's fully justified by a higher power. He is an avenging angel. The victims of the mad butcher vary in gender, race, and sexual preference. The significant commonality, all victims live on the margins of society. Kingsbury Run is a dry riverbed on the edge of urban Cleveland. This hobo jungle is the killer's hunting zone. Eleven of the twelve victims were beheaded, killed when alive. One victim was decapitated. Seven of the heads were never found. One victim's head was wrapped in his bloody pants. Another head was wrapped in newspaper. Two were wrapped in burlap bags one wrapped in butcher paper and rubber bands. None of the heads of the bisected victims were ever found, disposed of in lakes and rivers. Two bodies were disposed of in city dumps. This killer is not hiding the bodies as much as he is discarding them. Victim number two's head is buried near the body with a bit of hair visible from the top of the head, as if it's sprouting from the earth. Of the six male victims, four of them were castrated. Of the six female victims, four are severed. The Cleveland Torso Killer shows an unusual amount of variation and experimentation with the corpses. He uses lie to remove skin on victim number eight. He stole the heart of victim number nine. You can see why the newspapers named the butcher mad. These variances serve to highlight the significant, single, unifying, terrifying signature. These victims were executed. Beheading is a deliberate act that's justified and carried out by the hand of God. The tension in the city of Cleveland is high after four years of gruesome murders and no arrests. In August 18th of 1939, the Cleveland Director of Public Safety, Elliot Ness, directed a midnight raid in Kingsbury Run with a force of 35 police officers and accompanied by three fire trucks. The police arrested 63 hobos who were questioned and fingerprinted. Fingerprinting is important because many of these victims were never identified. At that point, the police burn Shantytown to the ground. 
Elliot Ness was crucified in the press for that action. These hobos were victims of the Depression. They're not criminals. Over time, the city newspapers realized the beheadings have ceased. The press gave Ness no credit for that outcome. Why would they? No arrests were made. But in hindsight, Ness's choice to disrupt the hunting ground for the killer created a satisfactory result for the city as the killings stopped. And ironically, a satisfactory result for this missionary serial killer as the leveling of Shantytown had removed the blight of society's undesirables. In sharp contrast to Elizabeth Short, the victims of the Mad Butcher are anonymous in death, executed without ceremony, and disposed as if erased from the ledgers of life and death. A typewritten letter dated December 21, 1938, was received by the Cleveland police. Commonly referred to as the Gone to California note, it is the basis for the tenuous supposition that the mad butcher killed Elizabeth Short. Quote, You can rest easy now as I have come out to sunny California for the winter. I felt bad operating on those people, but science must advance. I shall soon astound the medical profession. What did their lives mean in comparison to hundreds of sick and diseased twisted bodies, just laboratory guinea pigs found on any public street? No one missed them when I failed. My last case is successful. I now know the feeling of Pasteur, Thoreau, and other pioneers. Right now I have a volunteer who will absolutely prove my theory. They call me mad and a butcher, but truth will out. I failed but once here. The body has not been found and never will be, but the head is buried in a gully on Century Boulevard between Western and Crenshaw. I feel it's my duty to dispose of the bodies. It's God's will not to let them suffer. End quote. A remarkable note from a self-appointed genius who compares himself to Thoreau and Pasteur. The author's use of the word failure when he refers to those he's killed has a disquieting Dr. Frankenstein feel to it. The note writer's dismissal of the humanity of his victims reinforces our conclusion of a missionary-style serial killer. However, there were no body parts found in a 1939 search of Los Angeles near Century Boulevard. The LAPD unearthed bones belonging to a small animal. This letter does not prove that the Mad Butcher was in Los Angeles in 1938, much less offer any indication that the killer was in the city in January of 1947. Cleveland police detective Peter Marylow initially considered the Gone to California note to be genuine. Within a year, he correctly dismisses it as a hoax. California investigators tentatively identified the likely author of the prank letter in 1942 as Charles DeVere, a quack doctor. The Mad Butcher is not the Black Dahlia Avenger. The last suspect has been eliminated, thus the Black Dahlia Avenger is unknown to us today and a stranger to Beth, 
And this necessitates a conversation about victimology. Could there be a reason Beth was taken by her killer? What is revealed about the Black Dahlia Avenger that he would target Beth as a victim? Beth took risks with strangers. What level of responsibility should be assigned to her? Very little. Beth's risk is similar to anyone hitchhiking in 1947. Blaming the victim is not the point of the intellectual exercise. There is an aspect to Beth's wanderlust that is connected to her being a victim in her childhood. There is great harm done when a parent betrays the child. Beth was the only member of her family to reach out to Cleo, the father who had betrayed his family during the Depression and ran from his responsibilities as a parent and husband. Beth was the only family member to experience a repeat disappointment. Beth's need for attention is a constant thread that runs through her choices in life. There is empathy for the fact that Beth has the understanding and the courage to know that she needs to journey to find herself. And journey she does. Elizabeth changed cities. Medford, Miami, Vallejo, Lompoc, Long Beach, Hollywood, and San Diego. She changed names. Betty with an E in Boston, Betty with a Y in a telegram, Beth in her letters to Gordon, and she's Elizabeth from Chicago in the registration book of the Mecca Motel when she spends the night with Red Manley. Beth's hunger for attention, the attention that she deserved, leads to flirting and a jealousy that undermines her loving relationships. Quote, Joseph Ficklin, your devotion is my most precious possession. Darling, how many lips have joined with yours since ours last met? Sometimes I go crazy when I think of such things. End quote. Beth's tendency to lie or fib creates distrust in her relationships with men as Fickling addresses in a loving manner in another letter. Just tried to call you for the sixth time since 11 a.m. I hope you enjoyed your breakfast date, which you seem to have kept despite the fact that you said you were not going to. If I am ever able to understand you, I'm going to consider myself quite accomplished. The Los Angeles Press positions the elusive Elizabeth as the MacGuffin named the Black Dahlia. Mysteriousness sells newspapers. Homelessness does not. From the Hollywood Citizen News, quote, she has variously been described as attractive, but not beautiful, exceedingly temperamental, sexy, unpredictable, and a girl with a past. Numerous equally attractive girlfriends have told police about scenes in hotels, rooming houses, and bars where the mysterious Miss Short was well known, but whose habits and activities remained vague and peculiar. Her known friends have associated her with dapper, well-to-do men about town, as well as elderly women. She changed her address frequently and was not known to be permanently employed. End quote. 
Police and press assume if they discover Beth's secret life, it would lead to a killer. They were wrong. This 1947 point of view is fueled by the number of Beth's contacts who are in hiding, who hesitate to come forward, who seem to have little to offer. Looking at the situation today, I note that Beth is not hiding, she's lost. What was perceived as a mystery in 1947, I now know, is a void. Beth fibbed often. It's something teenagers do. She told her mother and others she was a working actress, told Anne she was meeting her sister, told Manley she worked at an airline in San Diego. Beth told Mrs. French that she had a baby and lost it. When Beth showed people a newspaper article about Matt Gordon with a woman's name crossed out at the bottom, Beth would say the newspaper got the name wrong. It should be her name in the paper. How many people believe her when she says the newspaper got the name wrong? Beth doesn't care if others see through her lies and fabrications. In these stories, Beth tells others she presents herself as a victim. On the highway back to Los Angeles, Beth told Manley about a date in San Diego who scratched her arms. She told Elvira French it was bug bites. Why should anyone believe Beth when she says, a Marine is trying to kill me, and then the next thing she says, my daddy's coming in an hour? Well, that's clearly a lie. Most of Beth's stories about men threatening her are hearsay. Beth's contacts would be aware of her fabrications, and it raises the question, did Beth cry wolf too often? Consider the number of fruitless calls made from a payphone that night at the Biltmore Hotel. If Beth's friends have grown weary of her damsel-in-distress requests, she has only the kindness of strangers to rely on again. Rather than guess which of her victim stories are lies or fantasies, I view Elizabeth Short as a young woman who is more scarred than scared. Beth's constant lying, with little reason for doing so, is a significant indicator of a cluster B personality disorder. The subset of anti-social personality traits offers three examples of actions evident in her life. Persistent lying, disregard for the needs and feelings of others, and disregard for the safety of self. Mm -hmm. One of the histronic personality traits applies to Beth as well. Excessively dramatic, emotional, or sexually provocative actions to gain attention. Remember Mary Unkefer mentioning that Beth would sit so her tattoo would show. These antisocial and histronic traits are the type of patterns that led FBI profiler John Douglas to conclude that Elizabeth Short was a victim because of her personality and lifestyle. Quote, Elizabeth Short longed for something that always eluded her. She was young and emotionally vulnerable and needy, with a highly dependent personality. She could easily be targeted by anyone who wanted to dominate or hurt women. He could have spotted her a mile away. I agree with the conclusion with the caveat that John Douglas is offering 
and historical perspective. He was two years old in 1947. As an armchair crime enthusiast and David Fincher fan, I loved the show Mindhunter. On the show, the John Douglas character visits crime scenes and imagines himself in the killer's mindset. Profiling observations of historical crimes, like the Black Dahlia or Jack the Ripper, can offer insight, but was significantly less of a ceiling of value than observations that would have been gleaned at an intact crime scene or an interaction with a live witness. Douglas explains his system is an instinctual art. Quote, This methodology means some part of this is going with your gut as far as the killer, but also be on firm ground when you're winnowing down the suspects. A profiler isn't going to look at a crime scene and come up with an address and a phone number. Going with your gut is not ideal science. Intuition is real and we respect it. However, emotions can be very unreliable. At what point does intuition become insight? Allow me to offer an analogy that I find appropriate and amusing. A profiler is a bit like a dowser. Scientists dismiss dowsing because it can't be duplicated in a lab. Yet every farmer I've ever met believes in dowsing because every farmer wrote a check. Water was found. A dowser attempts to sense what is beneath the surface, and a profiler does the same. A dowser can't find a water closet in an office building, and a mine hunter is not going to be able to spot a serial killer in an elevator. Intuition has limits, but there's no doubting its value as a tool to see beneath the surface of the human psyche and explore the madness and sadism of dark souls. Criminologist Dan Kennedy challenges the concept of profiling when he asks, what, at what point is murder normal? It can't be. One is doing something abnormal. At what point is murder normal? That's an interesting question. Every one of us is capable of deadly violence in certain circumstances. We don't say a soldier is murdered in wartime because violent death is codified and normalized in war. If we watch a movie, the Americans don't murder Germans, they kill Nazis. A soldier at war develops a skill set similar to what is seen in a serial killer, dehumanization and compartmentalization. That doesn't mean the Black Dahlia Avenger is a veteran. War feeds a human capacity for violence and aggression that's always in place. These wartime skills are not desired in peaceful society. Psychopathic killers are able to process situations involving trauma, blood, and violence as normal without ever experiencing combat. The question abnormal psychology hopes to address is why are psychopathic murderers at war with society? In psychology, the use of the word abnormal refers to a deviation from ideal mental health. Freud compared the mind to an iceberg with the unconscious submerged, unseen and unknowable. Staying with this reference to abnormal behavior, let me sum up the why problem. 
One can't find a needle in a haystack by poking an iceberg with a pitchfork. There is no single trigger. There is no single answer to why. That question is too broad. Ah, the how question. That can be addressed, and I would highlight the findings of Professor Jack Levin. Quote, The presence of empathy, important for sadistic serial killers in two respects. First, their crimes require highly tuned powers of cognitive empathy that they use to capture their victims. Killers who do not understand their victims' feelings would be incapable of conning them effectively. Second, emotional empathy is critical for the sadistic killer's enjoyment of the suffering of his victim. A killer who tortures and humiliates must be able to understand and experience his victim's suffering, otherwise there would be no sexual arousal. Thus, he feels his victim's pain, but he interprets it as its own pleasure. Levin offers the example of Ted Bundy, who would entrap young female students by faking an injury. Bundy's victims would be snared because they had empathy. Applying Levin's definition to the lone women murder victims, compare the bludgeoning of Jeannie French an unplanned emotion-based act of rage, in contrast with the planned violence inflicted upon Elizabeth Short. The key emotion of the impulsive murder is the rage of the killer. Jeannie French lies unconscious in the ground as she dies. Her killer has already walked away. The key emotion in the Black Dahlia torture is the victim's fear and pain. The 1947 police and public processed the overkill murders as an extension of killer's rage, and therefore the murderer must always have a personal relationship with the victim. Overkill is not a predictor of whether a homicide is premeditated. The sheer number of unsolved crimes proves the overkill assumption to be false. I've quoted a number of sources that study serial killers, it's commonly stated, that who murdered Elizabeth Short is not a serial killer. Now this is an uninteresting assumption stated as fact. There is no similar Black Dahlia mutilation crimes on record. That's true. However, as the Avenger showcases a level of articulation that indicates prior violence, the comfort level with blood, the lust for torture, the sense of purpose and design in the post-mortem treatment of the body, it's very likely that the Black Dahlia Avenger has disposed of his previous victims. As John Douglas states, you don't jump into this kind of thing without some criminal evolution and development. The Black Dahlia Avenger developed a significant appetite for torture. Let me pose a question. How would the police know when a serial killer begins killing? They can't. That makes the previous question mute in a way, doesn't it? Investigators need multiple connected crime scenes so the signature elements and patterns can emerge, which creates a profile that can be predictive. So, of course, this crime falls short of the FBI definition of three crime scenes. 
Yet notice how the actions of the Black Dahlia Avenger align with the FBI description of an organized, non-social lust murderer. This sexual offender is cunning and methodical. Commonly, the killer lives some distance from the actual crime scene. The killer will cruise in his hunt for an arbitrary victim. This assailant is likely to commit his crime in isolation and transport the body to a venue where there's a high probability it'll be discovered. The offender is excited by the idea of the discovery of the slain body and by society's reactions. The organized, non-social lust murderer may dissect the victim's body and attempt to hinder identification. It's unlikely that physical evidence will be present at the crime scene. This outline certainly fits the Avenger. I counted 10 out of 11 examples of type. Elizabeth Short's killer is an organized, non-social lust murderer who has fantasized how he would torture his next victim. The signature elements evident in the mutilations are a result of those fantasies. The psychological patterns of Elizabeth Short's personality align with Levin's observations of victimhood. Now let me share my conclusions on the case. First, there's no missing days. On the 12th of January, four-star bartender Arthur Lagura saw Elizabeth with two blondes. This is two days after four-star bartender Buddy Lagora saw her with two brunettes, one of whom was a regular customer. Four-star waitress Gloria Hattenberg commented to police that she had seen Elizabeth multiple times in the tavern and almost always in the company of women. There is no one to report Beth missing. As I've mentioned before, it's clear that the LAPD has reason to manufacture this fiction of missing days, given the public relations embarrassment that Officer Merrill McBride would create if the officer did not officially change her mind about identifying Elizabeth at the downtown Corral Bar because Beth told McBride a man was trying to kill me. And then Beth turned up dead. So I appreciate the research of Steve Hodell when he interviewed Officer Merrill McBride uh, very late in her life. I am convinced there are missing nights, but there are no missing days. Second, the Norton Avenue location has no evidentiary value. There is a message in the suburban body placement, but no message in placing this dead body in this real estate development. There's no lover's lane. There's no surrealistic element or choice. Both Betty Bersinger and LAPD patrol officer Wayne Fitzgerald didn't even see a body at first glance, but an alabaster mannequin discarded in the weeds. The vacant lot presentation is an advertisement for an Avenger. Third, the press influence. The primary question concerning the press on the web is whether the Black Dahlia moniker was invented by the newspapers. That question is answered by reading a newspaper. The Associated Press story in the San Bernardino Sun of January 18th states, Police Captain Lauren Q. Martin of Long Beach 
said the moniker was given to Elizabeth Short by hangers-on at a neighborhood drugstore where she lived. Hangers-on, locals, not friends. The Black Dahlia is only a nickname in the sense that co-workers have derogatory monikers for questionable new hires. Consider that there's no evidence that Elizabeth Short ever heard the words the Black Dahlia spoken. There's a large number of Black Dahlia myths to dispel in 2021. But there were no myths in 1947. The press manufactured an identity for the Black Dahlia through fictionalization. Jack Smith answered the phone at the rewrite desk of the Los Angeles Daily News, and the police beat reporter gave Jack the story over the phone, and Smith wrote the following lead. The nude body of a young woman, neatly cut in two at the waist, was found early today on a vacant lot near Crenshaw and Exposition Boulevard. This copy was submitted to the city editor who inserted the word beautiful. Uh, Well, an editor that never knew Elizabeth Short, he doesn't know if she's beautiful, but he does know the story of a beautiful nude woman is going to be front page. A beautiful nude needs bigger headlines and photos and column space. And so that's the beginning of the fictionalization. To quote Los Angeles crime expert Joan Renner, a depressed and lonely young woman with daddy issues looking for love by sacrificing her pride isn't the stuff of novels or movies, end quote. Well, here I am with a podcast about a 70-year-old unsolved murder of a homeless person. It's not the red hibiscus murder, it's the Black Dahlia. And the importance of that name is something uh, that Harry Hansen commented on, quote, there were crimes of that same year that were at least as heinous and victims at least as pretty, and none of them got anywhere near the same attention. It was that name, Black Dahlia, that set this one off. Just those words strung together in that order turned Elizabeth Short's murder into a coast-to-coast sensation. Black as night, mysterious, forbidden even. The Dahlia is an exotic and mysterious flower. There could not have been a more intriguing title, any other name, and it wouldn't have been anywhere near the same. It's true. Naomi Cook got one day of news, and the Black Dahlia gets over 70 years of headlines. There certainly is power in the name Black Dahlia. Hansen forgets that the very first headline was not about the Black Dahlia. Girl, tortured and slain, hacked nude body, found in L.A. lot, is about the discovery of Jane Doe number one. That's the headline that sold the most newspapers. Hansen also forgets how significant the timing is to how the Black Dahlia story evolves in the media. The killer noticed that news was getting sparse when he sends Elizabeth's belongings to the press and challenges the police to capture him. The next time the Black Dahlia news got soft, there's another mutilation murder happening on the West Side, and the press presents the Jeannie French murder as a sequel murder. The return of the Black Dahlia adventure is presented as if it's a return of the werewolf movie. And throughout the summer, newspapers embrace a werewolf model as the repeatable box storyline. 
It's remarkable that a murder case would get a noir movie title moniker. And it brings me to the fourth conclusion. The press embraced the noir fiction elements of the crime. I've talked previously about the noir style of press photography that will utilize movie lighting techniques in order to demonize the suspects in police custody and make them look guilty. There are developments in this case that fit perfectly into a film noir theme. The Black Dahlia is the MacGuffin would be the first thing. But let's count how many boxes get checked in the following list of film noir elements. An outsider comes to the big city. Check. Noir stories are city stories. Bleak and heartless urban cityscapes of cement and headlights. No farms, no seasons, no harvest. If you want to know the weather in noir, look at the asphalt. If it's wet, it rained. No heroes in this story. The game is crooked. Check. Main character in noir is a mark that struggles against fate. Fatalism. A noir is the opposite of a western. There is no good guy that saves the town. Check. Creatures of the night. One sees the despair and madness in the faces of indifferent strangers. Check. I would call your attention to the despair and madness in the faces of the many confessors to the Black Dahlia murder. Femme fatale, a caged songbird, the chartreuse, a sexy, desirable, and unattainable woman. Check. No happy ending. Check. The Black Dahlia fictionalization packaged the mystery as noir entertainment. The fifth and final conclusion, Dr. J. Paul DeRiver is the major obstacle to a result in the Black Dahlia investigation. I've covered DeRiver's incompetence previously. His Lombroso-inspired belief system that ignores modern psychology. The two innocent men that were executed under his supervision. The useless pronouncements that a woman was responsible and the useless pronouncement that the killer is going to confess. Then you have the Leslie Dillon alter ego fiasco. And yet there is more. There is an abuse of his office. The Sexual Offense Bureau misdeeds had an effect on potential witnesses. Let me explain. Dr. DeRiver was one of five experts who testified at a California State Assembly Committee on Abnormal Sexual Behavior. There's a general agreement, except in response to homosexuality. Dr. J. Paul DeRiver's testimony stands alone in its recommendation of both brain surgery and electroshock therapy for homosexuals. DeRiver said it was his experience that while most sexual offenders could be re-educated, homosexuals are not likely to change because they are happy in their perversion. Well, well DeRiver, as we know, is no Freudian. This is 100% Lombroso-inspired. I discussed in podcast number six how Harry Weiss, part owner of the Jewel Room and other bars, betrayed his gay patrons by turning over their names to the Los Angeles Vice Squad. Then Weiss paid kickbacks to Vice based on his legal fees. Once arrested, 
The Los Angeles judges were known to have instructed homosexuals to accept treatment at the hands of, of Dr. DeRiver. Quote, it was stipulated that they would go to me for the necessary treatment, either take the shock treatment or they sit there for an hour at a time and they're re-educated. That's the way I practice medicine, end quote. As this was a court-ordered treatment, DeRiver benefited monetarily. The convicted homosexual is forced to pay for their own electroshock therapy. Outed homosexuals lose employment and would be labeled as pedophiles. So homophobia plays a significant role in the sparse results of the missing nights investigation. Why would jewel room and gateway bar patrons speak to the police when there is no basis for trust? The LAPD is looking for a sexual deviant in gay bars, perhaps seeking a gay version of Albert Dyer to pin the crime on. Why volunteer anything when your friends and co-workers could lose their jobs and be forced to pay for their own shock treatment? Frances Campbell, the bisexual waitress who worked at the Crown Grill, is on the district attorney list of suspects because they thought she's not telling them everything. There's no reason to assume that her information might break the case. There's every reason to think that Frances Campbell will tell police if she had a clue to what happened. But there's no doubt that volunteering information represented a risk to multiple witnesses. L Lieutenant Frank Jemison of the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office interviewed Ann Toth and asked, didn't Beth Short at one time or another indicate to you she wasn't fond of queer women? Ann replied, she always made the statement, very queer people in this town. Queer people, referring to both men and women, I guess. It's the only thing referring to queers that she ever mentioned. Elizabeth Short didn't have a problem with queers. She was known and remembered in those bars. The derivative queer problem negatively affected the Black Dahlia investigation. On January 9, 1947, Elizabeth Short walked south on Olive into the dead of night. A week later, the myth of the Black Dahlia rises up and haunts American culture to this day. I had hoped to solve the puzzle of who killed Elizabeth Short. However, it's not possible to fill in all the blanks when the crossword has so few clues given. I feel I've solved the puzzle of the Black Dahlia, from the origin of the name to why the Dahlia is the angel of death for the city of Los Angeles. Raymond Chandler described Los Angeles as a big, hard-boiled city with no more personality than a paper cup. This is a sentence that cuts like an axe when it hits your brain, as it captures the truth of the feel of the city. However, it falls short of capturing the depth of the dark soul of Los Angeles. The tragedy of Elizabeth Short is not the tragedy of a paper cup. What holds the naive wannabe has no bottom. Los Angeles has the soul of an intestine that holds and squeezes you and moves you along. One last thing. A newspaper interviewed Lynn Martin. Let me share what she'd said. Quote, 
There are a lot of girls in Hollywood who could end up like Beth Short. Hollywood draws them from all over the country. Hollywood is a lonely place when you come into it without home ties or friends and very little money. There are few places for a lonely girl to go except into a bar. Girls pick each other up at a store or a bar and they start rooming together like old friends. Women ram together on daily or weekly arrangements to save on expenses. It doesn't matter that they don't know anything about each other. It's someone to talk to and share the rent with, like Beth and Marjorie and I. Sharing the rent means more money for something to eat or a new pair of shoes. Even more important than food sometimes is having makeup and being able to see your hair looking good because if you look good, you can always get a man to buy you a thick steak, some french fries, and a cup of coffee. Nothing ever tastes good at first. But the guys you pick up all insist you order steak or chops and you get so sick of meat. Meat all the time. And after a while, you can hardly get it down. You don't You don't drink at first because you don't like liquor. You don't like the taste. But you drink because you're on a date in a bar. You have to order something. And when you're out on a date, the first thing is always a couple of drinks and then a couple of drinks. You're always lonely in Hollywood, even when you're out with people. They don't belong to you, those people. None of them really care what happens to you. Lots of times you can hardly stand the man you're with, but you can forget about it after a few drinks. A lot of times the girls talk to each other about getting out of Hollywood and starting all over again. They're going to go back home or they're going to get married to someone. And down in the heart of all of those is a sort of hazy dream about a husband and a house and a baby. They talk about it. They dream about it. But somehow they almost never do it. This life... It's like a drug. You can't give it up. Most of the girls are pretty innocent and well-meaning at first. The road downhill is gradual. Sooner or later, they become pregnant, and many of them resort to an illegal operation. And sometimes, some of them end up like Beth Short. End quote. Thank you for listening to the Black Dahlia and Blue Dahlia podcast. This has been rewarding for me intellectually and emotionally, and I appreciate your company on this journey. Goodbye.